You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hawaii's COVID positivity rate has more than doubled since the beginning of March. At that time, we aired an interview with Dr. Tarkin Collis, Kaiser Permanente's infectious disease chief, where he discussed the third anniversary of the COVID shutdown and the 4% positivity rate. That prompted Lee Altenberg, a theoretical population biologist at the University of Hawaii, to leave a message on our talkback line. His research tries to understand the nature of population dynamics and how a population process the conversations Brussels Subiano spoke with Altenberg recently about Hawaii's current 9% COVID positivity rate and the uptick in cases. Most people are acting as though it's 2019 again, as though COVID is gone, as though there's no risk to them and that they pose no risk to others. And it's just not true. The numbers, the data don't say that that is the truth. And so people are operating under mistaken beliefs on a mass scale. And a lot of people are going to get sick because of that. And a lot of people are going to actually die because of that. And so I feel as somebody who is able to communicate what the data actually says, a certain responsibility to do so. And so when the host said that we're down to a low 4.2% positivity rate, I said, wait a minute, low with respect to what? Maybe with respect to the worst it's been in the pandemic, but not with respect to the whole condition of the whole pandemic. So I've been looking at the data and the positivity rates. So the median is the number at which half the days are below it and half the days are above it. And so the median positivity rate for the COVID tests that were reported to the Department of Health was 2% in 2020. And and it was like 1.7% in 2021. And it was about 2% for both of those years combined. So 4.2% positivity is twice what it was for the first two years of the pandemic. Now, positivity, what's the significant? Why is that such an important number? It's because of the home tests, all right? Because of the home tests, the number of recorded PCR tests that the state has the data for and is made public has dropped significantly. So when you look at case numbers, those are now only a fraction of the actual infections that are going on. But the positivity rate, So that's when somebody thinks they might have gotten exposed, has some symptoms, and they go and get a PCR test. And so this past week, the positivity rate's been 9%. Right. So that means if you were in a line of people to get their PCR tests, one out of 11 of them would be infected with COVID at that moment. Now, that's reflective of how much COVID there is in the general population. There's some going to be some factor because a lot of people have COVID, but don't have any symptoms. In fact, it's estimated that 40% of infections with COVID, they never have any symptoms. The person never knew they were infected. They were out there infecting others and had no idea. And so the positivity rate is like an estimate of how frequent it is in the general population, but there's some scaling factor that's unknown. What do you think it's closer to? If we're at 9% this week, what do you feel we might be closer to in reality? Well, that's really hard. The best way to try to actually evaluate that would be to get the fraction of people that check into the hospitals because they've been doing a PCR test on every person that checks in for the whole pandemic, or at least since they had the tests. And so most of those people are not there because of COVID. And so that's a a pretty good sample of how much COVID there is out in the general population. So that's really important data that would tell the public how much COVID there is. But unfortunately, That data is not available. I've requested it a number of times from the Hospital Association of Hawaii, but there's been no response. 
So that number would be really important for the public to know how much COVID there is walking around in Hawaii. Okay. Now, what I do know is there's a 95% correlation between the positivity rate and the number of people hospitalized for COVID. But you have to make a 13-day delay. So when the numbers go up in the positivity, 13 days later, they go up in the hospitalizations. That's the best correlation. And so we've seen a bump in the positivity rate. And then we've seen a subsequent bump in the number in the hospital. And so we ought to see that continue for the next week. Now, here's an interesting thing. The number of people getting tested for COVID has been very low. But just in the past couple of weeks, it jumped up multiple fold. And so why is that happening? Well, I mean, it could be because a lot more people around them are coming up with COVID and they're saying, oh, I better get tested. Or it could be, you know, I went to this spring break party and I'm kind of wondering if I got exposed to COVID and then maybe I better go test. Yeah. We don't know what that is, but there is a huge jump in the number of tests in the past couple of weeks. I think we rely a lot on the medical experts to kind of guide us and give us a lot of information about what's going on with the pandemic and what we should do. For somebody in your field who looks at the numbers, is what you see different than what the medical community is telling us? Or do you have information that supplements or complements what they've been telling the public? The big picture is that the political leadership and in lockstep with them, most public health people have tried to adopt a position that the pandemic is over and that the public can safely forget about it and go about living as they did in 2019. So that's, you know, it's a bandwagon, all right? And, you know, there was a bandwagon of buying houses in 2007. And so lots of people thought, hey, it's gonna be profitable to buy a house now. And little did they know they were in the middle of a housing bubble, but because there were things that they didn't see, they didn't see all the collateralized debt obligations that were gonna blow out the financial system. And so there was invisible stuff going on that they weren't aware of. And so we had a housing bubble and that burst. Well, so I see us now is in a normalcy bubble. So everybody thinks, ah, oh, it's normal again. So, you know, what's that based on? So there is data. The case numbers are way down, but guess what? What's invisible is all the positive tests at home that are not being reported. The number of deaths has gone way down. The death rate has gone way down. But the problem is when people are comparing it to what it was at the worst of the pandemic, they're forgetting what it was for most of the pandemic. And so if we look at, for example, what was the average weekly death rate in Hawaii from COVID? And we can look at each year. And in 2020, it was 8.7. In 2021, it was 14.5. It went way up. In 2022, it was 12. And now this year, it's been six. So six compared to 8.7, that's about two thirds of the death rate of COVID as the first year of the pandemic. That's not a pandemic that's over, <laughs> all right? So the problem is this normalcy bubble is normalizing the pandemic and the deaths rates from it is such that, you know, it's like, you know, somebody has been putting their full weight on your foot and now they're only putting, you know, half their weight on it. And you think, oh, what a relief. So the positivity is another example of that. We're at 9%, that's three times what the average was for 2020 and 21. So that means that you go out in a crowd now, there's three times the number of people positive with COVID as there were in a crowd back in 2020. It sounds to me like 
we still need to be cautious. We still need to take precautions. We still need to mask up and try and avoid large gatherings to take tests when we feel we could have symptoms. Yes. I mean, you know, when I see people out in public acting as though it's 2019 again, you know, I worry like, oh, my God, you know, they are sitting ducks. The other big misleading idea is that COVID is like the flu now that it evolved to get weaker or even some people think it's just a cold. If COVID was a con artist, I would have to rank it as one of the top ever known. Thanks very much for your time, Lee. Thank you so much for your interest. A lot. That was UH population biologist Lee Altenberg talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Altenberg says the common disposable paper surgical masks have a 60% efficiency when it comes to stemming transmission, while the N95 mask has shown to be 98% efficient. Support for HPR comes from Hakawone, committed to building a neighborhood in Kaka'ako Makai where all are welcome, offering keiki and kupuna care, and including a cultural center, farmers markets, and housing options. Hakawone.com. You know, Amitav Ghosh is an award-winning author and environmentalist, and he's considered by many to be one of the most important global thinkers of the decade. His writing explores the themes of capitalism, colonialism, and family, and it's been translated into 30 languages. He is in town for a free lecture at the University of Hawaii this week and talked with the conversation Stephanie Hahn this morning. Many of your works focus on characters who seem to be trapped or involved in escaping from the expectations, the limitations, and the boundaries of nation. So do you believe that this ordering construct of nationality, which is actually quite short in human history, is this still relevant to us? And if not, what do you might think is an alternative way of organizing the human family? Well, the first part of your question first. Yes, I'm very interested in self-fashioning. You know, and I think that happened a lot in the 19th century, and it especially happened with travelers. I mean, people, a lot of people in Asian circumstances, you know, uh, were kind of caught in in a whole sort of web of expectations, of caste, of clan, of family. They often, when they left, when they left home, they just assumed different kinds of identities. And you know, that's gone on for a very long time. I mean, even when I was at Oxford in the, in the 1980s, you know, I would meet these uh, people from India who would invent, you know, very colorful pasts for, for themselves <laughs> when I knew that they were perfectly ordinary people. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so that, uh, yes, that has happened a lot, I think. Uh, as, for the second, uh, as for the second part of your question, in so many ways, uh, nationality has really been completely undermined, both, both at the top and at the bottom. At the top, we might say, you know, 
of course, the United States is a nation. But if you consider that uh, it has such intimate ties with other Anglo-Saxon nations, you know, Britain, right. Australia, New Zealand. I mean, they call themselves the Five Eyes. They're, uh, the, you know, they have all the, you know, they share everything. Half the actors in, in um, Hollywood are Australian or, or right. British or whatever. Right. So there's a complete cultural melt. You know, they may, in a titular sense, uh, be individual nations, but we know perfectly well that, in fact, they're just a kind of large diaspora. I, I think this is increasingly true also at other levels of, the, of society. The Chinese diaspora is so large and so uh, important. The Indian diaspora is like that. And because of modern communications technologies, people don't actually live, you know, wherever they're located, in their heads. They're right. somewhere else. I've been in Italy, in southern Sicily, you know, meeting Bangladeshi migrants there. Uh, they have their FaceTime on all day. Right. So that they're talking, you know, to their families back home literally 24 hours. Right now, we are organized by nation, however, which does present a series of conflicts in terms of power grabs, whatever, natural resources. If we do not organize in this fashion, what are we supposed to revert to? Previous tribalism? I mean, what, what would be the solution if nation is not the best organizing principle for us to follow? The nation is the fundamental uh, building block. But on top of that, we do have a whole range of supranational organizations, you know, like the EU, for example. Right. I think the EU was very interesting in a way of um, conceiving of different ways of interacting. And, you know, we always learn about all the, uh, all the failures of the EU, but I think uh, they've also had some very significant successes. And that could be another model, certainly. So you previously addressed the literary novel's avoidance of um, looking at climate change and what we might term to be unusual natural uh, disasters or happenings. And that the conversation you stated about climate change was the domain of nonfiction. I was thinking, what do you think is the link between ownership and dominance of the natural world versus potentially any indigenous beliefs that assume we cannot control the elements and must align ourselves to the natural world? Well, it's, uh, it's really interesting that you're asking me that question here in Hawaii. Right. Because, uh, you know, uh, the Mauna Kea movement has been so important, I think, for all of us. It really brings these issues to a head. I mean, on the one hand, you have a belief in the sacredness of a, of a landscape and of a particular geological feature. And on the other hand, you have a group, uh, you ha have a set of ideas which only wants to use uh, that, uh, that landscape for particular utilitarian purposes. In this, I must say, I, I find myself completely sort of in sympathy with the Monarchia defenders. You know, there are already so many other observatories. What more are we going to learn? you know, mm. from one more. And I'm told that many of the old observatories are actually in, not even used. They're just there, they haven't been dismantled, they haven't, uh, their traces haven't been removed. And I think this is really a pattern of extractivism. You know, it follows on a broader pattern of extractivism. 
And I think it's very important today uh, to confront uh, indigenous, uh, indigenous beliefs, you know, because the most powerful defenders of, uh, of the soil, of the environment today, are really indigenous people all around the world. We saw a very important um, uh, instance of this uh, during the resistance to the Dakota pipelines. You right. know, the whole movement uh, to resist the Dakota pipelines uh, was really led by indigenous people and most of all by women. You know, concepts of sacredness of uh, the earth was so intrinsic to that movement. So do you think there is a link then between monotheistic beliefs or Judeo-Christian beliefs being in conflict with indigenous attitudes? Because the Judeo-Christian uh, belief system is obviously is at the center of global capital and power versus these indigenous beliefs. So I was wondering if you think that it's linked also to religious tradition. Yes, it is. Uh, I, I think there's no there's no sort of uh, uh, denying that. But you know. I think there are many nuances there, really, because even within uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition, it's not clear. You can't say that it's all just one big thing. Correct. Right. I mean, especially if you look at earlier, uh, you know, especially if you look at the Old Testament, the weather, the atmosphere, the the landscape right. are so important to it. You know, within the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition, would you can't imagine that anybody would say, okay, let's tear down the Vatican and put down a huge <laughs> observatory here. <laughs> you know? right, right. Because that is sacred for them. <laughs> right, right. You know? They wouldn't say that about uh, Westminster Cathedral, uh, you know, or, and certainly they wouldn't say it about Jerusalem. Let's, you know, just, let's just plant a big um, observatory here. The real problem is that they don't reckon uh, with the fact that, you know, for so many indigenous people around the world, these relationships exist also in relation to the land. Right. That the land itself is a kind of cathedral that enshrines uh, very powerful beliefs. It's a problem of imagination. That was HPR Stephanie Hahn talking with uh, Amitav Ghosh. He is featured as part of the uh, University of Hawaii's Better Tomorrow speaker series. Uh, the lecture is tomorrow. Look for a link for that free talk on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Chaminade University, committed to teaching the concepts of social justice and affecting change in Hawaii's communities, offering an online master's in criminal justice studies, chaminade.edu. reality check today looks at the status of a bill that some say will help keep the population of wild deer in check. Civil Beat reporter Thomas Heaton covers agricultural issues and joins us today. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning. So, yes, Maui has a horrible problem with uh, with access deer just you know running amok and in in uh, uh, really putting a crimp in our, our local farmers but tell us about uh, the legislation that's uh, underway 
Yes, yeah, so the this bill is um, essentially trying to reboot the state's meat inspection program. It's being seen as a playing a key role in alleviating the deer issue and hopefully uh, also uh, addressing the state's long-standing food security concerns. So the state hasn't had a state meat inspection program since 1995, um, and so it's been relying on the US Department of Agriculture. Um, so what comes with that, though, for deer is an increased cost and, I guess, burden for those who want to get the meat into the food system because it's not deemed an amenable species. So it goes under this thing called voluntary inspection. And with that, um, the the logistics and the realities of um, doing the, uh, the grisly part of getting meat into the food system is not quite as simple as bringing a... Uh, cow or uh, a steer into a slaughterhouse and dealing with it there it's the reality is is that a USDA inspector actually has to go out into the field with someone make sure that they have a clean shot with their rifle or air rifle or whatever means they're using and then also uh, follow the animal from field to processing facility um, so it's, it's, it's a rather a large burden, uh, especially as a lot of these deer culling operations are nocturnal. Um, and by putting in this uh, state meat inspection program, the, the state essentially seems to be hoping that it might relieve some of those costs for people who are wanting to start these businesses, trying to get access deer into the food system and, of course, while simultaneously alleviating the uh, strains that come along with the big, big deer populations um, across Maui. So um, as, a, as a little bit of an, an aside or a bit of context is, about 10 years ago the population was estimated to be about 12,000 deer across the county, uh, and that came at an economic cost of about $2.1 million dollars. Now, fast forward to now, uh, the population is about five times that. So the cost of putting in this program has been estimated um, to be $1 million. And then, of course, uh, that will need to, uh, there will need to be some more funding alongside that each year to, you know, f to mm -hmm. cover operating costs, which is also estimated to be about $1 million per year. So um, if you look at the cost-benefit, I think that some people are quite behind it in terms of those impacts. Right, and, uh, you know, I've been looking at the comments, too, that uh, your uh, um, your your members uh, uh, have been uh, weighing in on, and uh, there are folks that are concerned about the goat population on the Big Island, and, and they're just saying, you know, uh, in, an inspector program can only help if we want to try and, uh, uh, you know, corral these populations and provide food, you know, for the local community. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's not just deer that are affecting um, Hawaii, of course, there are the goats, there's sheep, and then there's also the pigs. Um, and, you know, corralling and controlling those populations and simultaneously feeding people um, seems to be a good idea if the state's really serious about increasing its food security and achieving its climate goals. Right, and so that legislation's headed to conference committee in the next couple of weeks here, and so we'll see how that works. Uh, but thank you so much, Thomas. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Thomas Heaton with a story about an effort to resurrect a program to boost our agricultural inspectors. You can read the story at civilbeat.org.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, announcing artist pop-ups this Saturday, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., featuring Honolulu-based Chris Goto and the North Shore's Route 99, Hawaii. A graveside gathering is taking place at the Oahu Cemetery right now. It's to mark the 203rd birthday of Alexander Cartwright, Jr. He was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame and is sometimes referred to as the father of the modern game. Taking part in the commemoration is his great-great-granddaughter, Anna. She was born at Waihua General Hospital and says she learned how to swim from one of Duke Hanamoku's brothers near the Waikiki Auditorium. She flew in from California, where she works as the designer for rock music shows now, and she joined us in our studios earlier this morning. It was just wonderful growing up with the sport, having it in my family, having the honor, and all the other wonderful things he's done, too. Yes, and I think people here in Hawaii know him for his contributions here in the community. So, Mm -hmm. you know, talk about what his legacy means to Hawaii. It's phenomenal that he's brought the sport to Hawaii and opening the first fire department, being the first fire chief, the public library, opening a reading room to women and children, all the wonderful accomplishments he did when he came here early on, and that he loved it so much that he brought his family. And all the generations of my family ever since have been born here. And, you know, even though we're Howleys, we're Kama'aina through and through the bone, right into the marrow. I feel it every day. I miss home every day. And I will eventually move back here. We're planning uh, some plans in the air for doing a Cartwright venue type museum where we mix music, baseball music, rock and roll guitars like the Grammy Museum mixed in with some of the Cartwright accomplishments and also my stage clothes, rock star clothes. We're trying to do showcases and maybe do a venue where people can come in, look at everything, see the history, educate of things they didn't understand or know how baseball was originated and all the accomplishments great-great-granddad did. And so here in Hawaii, you know, residents know Cartwright Field. Mm -hmm. And then there is this, you know, traditional gathering on his birthday at Oahu Cemetery Mm -hmm. uh, where he's buried. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm told stories, oh, you know, people leave baseballs, they leave gloves, you know, talk about that. It's, It's wonderful to go and see a mountain of baseballs and people doing personal messages and notes to him and flower lays all over the headstone and the monument and even the plaque when you walk up the stairs people just leave gifts and bats and balls and caps and it's just wonderful it's so wonderful to have that honor and have people remember him not a lot of people on the mainland they say Abner Doubleday a lot of people don't remember who he is or know who he is so over here, it's completely different. Just recently, that's come up where people are disputing that he mm-hmm. had a big hand in creating the game. I don't know. When you hear that, what comes through your mind? Well, I had a talk with uh, John Thorne. He is a historian, and he said it must be hard for you to live your whole life knowing your great-granddad invented baseball and then realize it's not true. And that 
hurts, you know, that people want to discredit him. I, at one point, thought I should do a game show or some type of show where who wants to say they invented baseball now? (laughs) Because there's always somebody coming out of the woodwork saying, I did it, they did it, I'm the great-great-granddaughter. All kinds of imposters and people taking advantage of, you know, the fact that he was all the way in Hawaii and on the mainland, Doubleday took over and over here, he did so many other things. He didn't have time to take all you know his his memoirs and write everything down step by step and do a a uh, memoir of his life so that's why they say we don't have enough written information to prove that what he did he did and who wrote the rules down who he was with when all this went down it's not recorded that we have found yet but we're looking it's probably out there somewhere well i think just to know though his contributions just here in this community you know to think that gosh 203 years later you know we're still gathering to uh, pay homage to him thank you bless you all it's it's wonderful to keep his spirit alive he's he's just an amazing man to do all those things in one lifetime one lifetime it's it's wow and so talk about the the ceremony that's held uh, at the at the gravestone and you know who all comes out and, and and what's planned. Well, I haven't been to many because I've been out of town and I know Quirky Gallagher puts it all together with a group of wonderful people that belong to the Alexander club and they're up there and they celebrate and they I've seen where they have boards with the pictures and everybody talks talks about their memories and their their fun times with baseball and they put it all together and make it a good time. I think they they play catch up there too occasionally and they sing him happy birthday and everybody puts lays out and it's just wonderful. Yeah, it's fun because it's it's a a lot of our sports sports fans and our sports broadcasters who just love the history and just really think it's important that Mm -hmm. we pay homage to him. Yeah. We had talked uh, before and you had said that, yeah, that some of the the haters that are coming out on (sighs) social media that you just you'd rather not deal with all of that but you know what is it that you would like uh alexander cartwright jr to be remembered for his contribution to the sport of baseball in whatever form people want to feel that he contributed for me he's the father of modern baseball and always will be and all the other accomplishments he's done and thinks he's honored for the state of Hawaii and that's what I want him to be remembered for that he loved the people he came here and oh my goodness he he helped develop all kinds of wonderful remarkable things the fire department the library and those things are are everlasting forever every time I see the fire truck go by hi everybody (laughs) And then do you have, I don't know, another fun fact or just a memory growing up here, uh, either with Cartwright Field or um, or just the game itself? Just meeting all kinds of famous baseball players when I was young, Joe DiMaggio. I shook his hand and my mother tapped me and she said, you know, he's married to Marilyn Monroe. What? <laughs> and I, I met a lot of baseball greats and I was a little girl and I felt so honored that they were treating me like a princess and it made me 
feel like I am a part of something way bigger than myself, my family, and what he has done is worldwide. And what an honor to be related to somebody so remarkable, an inventor, a craftsman, all kinds of wonderful things he's done. In the headlines recently, we've seen how the rules of baseball have been uh. modified, you know? <laughs> well, what are your thoughts on that? Oi, 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 oi. <laughs> that pisses a lot of people off. It, it's becoming more modernized to the point of you can't just be casual anymore and just play and take your time and do what you want. They're trying to set it all up in a time frame. And I think that'll piss a lot of people off, <laughs> or it has. And just the popularity of the game. I mean, mm, this yeah. year, Japan, you know, won the world oh, championships. God, I I mean, they, they're Amazing. crazy about baseball yeah. over there. Oh, but, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, baseball, apple pie, Chevrolet. That's what I was taught when I was young, <laughs> the American things. And I'm proud to be related to that. I'm, I'm blown away sometimes. But there are the naysayers. There are a lot of people that I, my Scottish blood boils, but I, I just let it roll off my back like water on a duck's back type thing. You know, it's, I, I don't want to go down that road. It's not worth it. And that was Anna Cartwright, the great-great-granddaughter of Alexander Cartwright Jr., talking about the gravesite gathering marking his birthday at the Oahu Cemetery at this very hour. If you want to learn more about Mr. Cartwright, there is a book written about him by Hawaii author Don Chapman, which is available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. 